Aisling Interiors is an online interior design service available to everyone. I started working with them a few weeks ago, and I cannot wait to tell you about the changes I'm making to my living room. But first, let me tell you how easy it is to work with them. You complete their quiz so they can get a feeling for your style and your budget. You provide some measurements of the space you're working with, and you can upload photos of the room itself or any furniture, wallpaper, or anything that you have already chosen for this space, including screenshots and things like that and links from Pinterest. Your designer will then create a 3D model of your space to scale using the colors you want, furniture to match your style, any other details that you told them about that you want and need. You have the opportunity to provide feedback to make sure that everything is exactly how you want it. And then afterwards, you'll receive a printable form with all of the information that you talked about. When I worked with my designer, she sent me links to rugs and curtains and even art from different places online. It was so easy. So I've always wanted a moody room. I would love to have my whole house like that, like paint all the walls black. Uh, Yes, please. Immediately, yes. But we're just going to do the living room. (laughs) So that's what we're doing. I'm literally going today to Sherman Williams to pick up the paint. I cannot wait. I'm so excited. Move forward with your project with confidence, knowing that everything you picked will fit perfectly in your home and your lifestyle. Go to aislinginteriors.com. That's A-I-S-L-I-N-G interiors.com and complete the quiz on the space you want to redesign. Then use code NOISE at checkout to receive 10% off any booking. That's aislinginteriors.com, code N-O-I-S-E at checkout to receive 10% off any booking. I feel like there's a safety in writing that is not as diving headfirst into trauma work. It's the space where we can put it out there and making a thing. And then we're talking about this thing that somebody's creating, whether it's fiction, poetry, or a memoir. But the internal process of being able to write it is this incredible healing, meaning-making thing, which I consider spirituality. You're listening to Make Some Noise Podcast, episode number 469 with guest Roxanne McDonald. Welcome to Make Some Noise Podcast, your guide for strategies, tools, and insight to empower yourself. I'm your host, Andrea Owen, global speaker, entrepreneur, life coach since 2007, and author of three books that have been translated into 18 languages and are available in 22 countries. Each week, I'll bring you a guest or a lesson that will help you maximize unshakable confidence, master resilience, and make some noise in your life. You ready? Let's go. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm so glad that you're here. As I mentioned, I think last week in my intro, you would be astounded at the amount of times I start and start over these intros. You know what it feels like? I just realized it feels like when you go to a party or some kind of network event or some kind of socializing and you're super awkward. I mean, we all, I'm an extrovert and I'm awkward. People are surprised sometimes when I tell them that. And I'm like, I don't know if other extroverts are also awkward or if it just comes so naturally to them, but it does not come naturally to me. I don't know if it's mental health stuff or what. But anyway, you know, when you go and you're awkward and then you're like, either thinking about or obsessing on how you sounded stupid or like, you wish you could say that over. And that's what this is. The good news is, is that I get to start over. The bad news is 
sometimes I don't think I actually need to. <laughs> and I know there are other podcasters who have everything written out ahead of time. They either read their intros from a script or have really great notes that they use as to not annoy their listeners. I don't have that. I just have a couple of things in my head. I'm like, oh, I need to tell them about this. But I do read the bio. I don't memorize that. I'm pretty sure you knew that. You knew that, right? Okay. Well, today we have Roxanne McDonald on, another amazing human I found on TikTok and was just vigorously consuming her content. And I was like, I need to have you on the show. I'm pretty sure I'm going to have her back on in my sobriety theme that's coming up in a, in a few months. But, um, oh my God, it's been a hot summer. I hate to be boring and talk about the weather. That's the last thing that I want to do. Speaking of awkward, um, but shit, it's been hot. Damn it. It, ugh, I think this is what Bananarama was talking about when they saying uh, cruel summer in the eighties. If you are around my age, you remember that. Lastly, before I introduce you to our fantastic guest today, we have some openings this fall for some private coaching. And when I say we, I mean my amazing lead coaches, Liz and Sabrina, and I. It's really easy if you are thinking about it. You can head on over to andreaowen.com slash apply, and there's an application right there. And even if you just want to look at the application – if you're like, do I need a coach? Do I want to? Do I want to look more into this? Just read the questions on the application, and that might kind of spark something and be like, oh yeah, maybe or no, I think I'm okay. Whichever, andreaowen.com/apply. And once that gets submitted, if you're interested, we will let you know who we think the best fit is for you. You can get on the phone with us. It's super easy. All right, let me tell you a little bit about our guest today. I'm really excited for you to meet her. Roxanne McDonald has dedicated herself to helping people find their voice both on the page and in their lives. For 14 years, Roxanne was on the management team of two alternative high schools focused on serving at-risk youth. She taught creative writing, poetry, and memoir writing in alternative schools and produced 11 anthologies of student writing. Roxanne is the author of the best-selling self-help decks, Spiritual AF and Grateful AF, published by Knock Knock Publishing and holds a BA in Interdisciplinary Education from California Institute of Integral Studies and an MFA in Creative Writing for Pacific University. Roxanne is a writer, teacher, public speaker, coach, podcaster, social media influencer, and workshop facilitator. And so without further ado, here is Roxanne. <laughs> Roxanne, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I am so excited. I've been watching you from afar on TikTok and love your content. And now that I got a chance to chat with you a little bit before we started recording, I hope that I can have you back on again to talk about further topics that you're an expert on. But today we're talking about spirituality and, and creativity and perhaps the overlap that that is there. And can you talk to us first and foremost, because the term spirituality is such a large one, what does spirituality mean to you personally? Um, that's a great question. Uh, and especially, I mean, I, I get this a bit because I of my, my name on social media, which is Spiritual AF. Mm-hmm. Um, so I see spirituality as meaning making and having agency and consciousness about uh, my belief system. And so I think spirituality is 
um, is just aligning ourselves, or I'm going to speak for myself. I see my spirituality as aligning myself and my thoughts and my actions with, um, with my beliefs and my values. And the practice of it is not static. It's, it's not concrete. It is um, fluid and moving and growing. I, I love that. I, it, you know, it's ask 10 different um, spiritual creators, writers, yeah. experts, what that means to them. And you're going to get 10 different answers. And I, I really love that, that you've, you've created that for yourself. Can you briefly tell us what was your upbringing? Like, did you grow up with, you know, kind of like hippie parents or did you grow up in a like more conservative Christian home? What did that look like for you? I grew up with a Southern mother who grew up in the Baptist church. Okay. Um, but she wasn't very religious at all, but we would go to Baptist church. We'd go to Baptist churches when, you know, there'd be a crisis and then we would get, we were, you know, we were in generational poverty. And, um, and so we would get, you know, the community support. And then my mom would then get in an argument with somebody and we would blaze out. So I I didn't get, I didn't get really into any church. I do have this story though, about, um, about myself and religion, because uh, my, every summer, I don't know how we figured this out when I was a kid, but um, I figured out if we went into the phone book and just went to churches and we could call all the churches and they all had summer Bible camps. And Mm -hmm. then if we um, told them that we were poor, they would just come get us. And so I called all of them. And so every summer, like my brothers and I would go out into the driveway and like four station wagons would show up (laughs) and then we would pick which ones we would go to and we would split up and then come back and then talk about what it was like and like share our hall. So it was like, you would go, you wouldn't go with your siblings. You would all go to different ones. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, my, my one brother would go to a Mormon one. My other one would go to a Catholic and then I (laughs) was scouting them out. That's smart. (laughs) Yeah. And so we were like, the Catholics have really good crafts, but their snacks are horrible. And then the Baptists, their snacks are great, but it's, you know, they and they sing a lot, but then they, they talk a lot about scary stuff and that, so that was our, my, um, early experience with religious people where I would just go try them on and I'd be like, Oh, that's interesting. Oh, it's weird. You do that. So I got some benefit from it, but I never got, I, I like to say that I got all the trauma besides the religious one. And I feel really grateful for it. The other thing that I grew up with that is way more impactful is, uh, I grew up in Santa Cruz and so I was around new age hippie mm-hmm. witch priestess stuff. And then in my teenage years, I got sober. I got sober at 15 and I went to a clean and sober high school that focused mostly on, you know, wellness and personal development. And uh, we were exposed to a lot of practices. And one of them was a woman who was who brought all the girls through a year-long um program where we really got in touch with a feminine idea of spirituality and engagement with our bodies and with the earth. And so that has been one of the most impactful things. The other thing is that we had uh, meditation quite often. And so I did start becoming a practicing meditation at 16. So that's interesting. I didn't realize you entered into the world of sobriety and recovery at such a young age. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that would, yeah, that would definitely point you in the direction of, of spirituality, especially if you're, you know, in 12 step programs. And then it sounds like it led you to decide for yourself as you became an adult, what was best for you. 
yeah, I think, I I think what I've always come to is that what's best for me is having some belief that I'm working with. And for many, many years, I feel like one of my biggest strengths of being a support to other people was that I, I don't have a uh, concrete idea of what is right um, about spirituality. I could, I, my idea was that I go, if this belief makes me kinder, mm-hmm. more of service, calmer, more loving to myself and others, then I will use it right now. So if I'm believing in a guy that, you know, that lived 2000 years ago and talked about being of service and it's making me better right now, that's good. And then I can set it down and move to another one without any shame, without any right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what I feel like is, it is uh, with all the things I've practiced that's, I think, the strongest for me is, uh, or the most impactful is that ability to see the benefit, honor it, and then also say, nah. <laughs> right. I, I love that. I, I agree with you. You know, when you were saying, hey, if, if this thing makes you a better person, kind, um, helping others, compassionate, <laughs> then believe what you want to believe, whether it's Satanism or Baptist or whatever, but it's, Uh it's interesting to see, you know, my spiritual transition, you know, I grew up, uh, I grew up in the Lutheran church for a long time. And, and there was definitely some ideas that were bestowed upon me that are, that I look back on and I'm like, wow, that was shitty. Um, like, like you, I don't think I had quote unquote religious trauma as some of my friends and, you know, people who listen to this podcast have experienced, so it's, I think it's easier also for me to, to not dig my heels in and say, no, that's wrong. Cause I'm not really angry at anything, mm-hmm. any deity or religion or anything like that. But I do understand where people, you know, people find themselves in that place, but yeah, I mean, my gosh, if it makes you a better human run with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, okay. I want to kind of slightly shift gears and ask you about writing because yeah. you are also a writer. You have a couple of books and we'll of course link to those in the, in the show notes. So how has your writing or how, how does your writing help you connect more spiritually? Um, well, I, I see writing as my longest term, most consistent spiritual practice. Mm that it's a, a, the same as when I sit down to meditate. It's about presence. It's about um, consciously showing up and, and being with. And, um, and then I also utilize uh, traditional meditation practices in my writing practice. So a lot of times I will sit down, I'll meditate, I will con- I'll get present, and then I will open my computer, look at what I am about to write, and then stop again and then with an intention uh delve into the uh, uh you know a visualization about what i'm going to write or the message i'm wanting to convey and then i will go back in and start the actual physical writing of it but that presence is so connected with our ability to uh communicate and um and i think the emotional process of creating anything is is difficult and fun and expanding and takes us need well it makes us grow mm-hmm. if you really show up for mm-hmm. it and one of the things that i think about a lot about my spiritual practice and my writing practice is that i have 
been working on a memoir for decades. I was going to ask and, you about that. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and, um, and then I, it's taken me a long time and mm-hmm. I, I, I have this mentor, Ellen Bass, who's a poet and just an amazing human being. Every few months, I will call her up and say, "Like I, I'm such a failure. I can't. I'm all. You know, I keep. I keep not finishing this book." And then we'll go out to dinner, and she will inevitably say, "You, you have to become the person who wrote the thing, and the thing is calling for you to grow and become the person who wrote it." And you're my. You know, I have really. Uh, lofty goals for my memoir. And it was about a whole bunch of trauma and a mm-hmm. whole bunch of, of things that were unresolved in me. And so the, the uh, in tandem thinking that I am ready to put this story out there and I could have, I could have just thrown it out there, mm-hmm. but I have seen over the years of having to grow and accept and be kind and loving to myself. And at the same time, this next level of processing that's happening through writing this thing. And, um, and so I'm becoming the person who wrote the thing. And I think that a lot when I'm working with, with, uh, writers, cause I am a writing coach and I teach writing and, you know, and a lot of what I do is overlapped with my history as a counselor. And I don't do it explicitly because, you know, I, I feel like there's a safety in writing that is not as diving headfirst into trauma work, but it's this, it's this space where we can put it out there and making a thing. And then we're talking about this thing that somebody's creating, whether it's fiction, poetry, or a memoir. And, but the internal process of being able to write it is, is this incredible healing, meaning-making thing, which I consider spirituality. And I would think even with things like self-help books, which, I mean, I would think you, having written your self-help books, you had to become the person that wrote them, right? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, yes. (laughs) (laughs) You had to be the person who needed to write it, which is all the, you know, I didn't take up space, I didn't do the thing, and then now here's the lesson. But then do you think that in the writing of it, you had to grow as a, even though it's didactic, right? Right. I feel, and I, I always say, personally, there are a few things that feel shittier than writing a self-help book and feeling like a hypocrite about uh-huh. what you're writing. <laughs> it's like, it's like, oh, do as I say, not as I do. Like I couldn't, I, and it's the same thing. Like when I got sober, I had just started my coaching business. I just gotten certified and here I am. So my business is form, was formerly called your kick-ass life for a long time. And I remember sitting there thinking like, how on earth am I going to tell people to live their most kick-ass life when I know I have a drinking problem? And I am not doing anything about it. And I sat in those weeds for only a couple of months until it got so incredibly uncomfortable that I decided to reach out for help and and I got sober. So yeah, it's quite a spiritual experience. No pun intended there, but yes, I agree with all of what you're saying. Well, I'm having to, I mean, that, that hypocritical thing, especially when you're doing things that are teaching, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Like I have, I have the the two decks, which I we call self help books in a box. I what I wanted to write with my decks were self help books that I could give to the teenagers I used to work with. Mm-hmm. That it's a bite size, it's a meme on one side, and it's a little bit of a tool on the other. And I, when I put them out. I one's grateful AF, one's spiritual AF, and then I nosedived into like I am the least grateful person right now. <laughs> these things out and having to stand up and 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 I think being a teacher or or somebody who wants to, who has the 
I don't even want to say urge, but the calling to take up space and talk and share Mm -hmm. and grow publicly. There is this thing for me that I feel like it's a little bit of like a writer deadline where I go, well, Mm -hmm. I wrote those dang books. I better get back on on this gratitude. I better, I better pull one of my own freaking cards and live up to it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is great. It's another layer of living by what I, what I care about, what I really want to be. Well, and I think, you know, for the people listening, I, I just adore them. And, and I, I think one of the reasons that they have, you know, that they stick around, especially people who've been with me from the beginning is that I have never pretended to put myself up on a pedestal and pretend like mm-hmm. I live these lessons 100% of the time. I'm incredibly transparent. I mean, they walked with me in 2016 when my dad died. I was here on the podcast crying <sighs> about it. And, and it was, you know, because it was the first like major grief experience that I've ever had happen. And so I, I think that um, I'm not sure where I was going with this other than just talking about myself. But <laughs> no, we were talking about, you know, just kind of like living and not feeling like a hypocrite, but I just, I don't trust people who portray themselves on social media or online with, with no flaws at all. Like, I I don't think that everyone has to kind of put all of themselves out there and like, you know, be demonstrative with their emotions or anything like that. But I just, it's like, well, shit, we're all humans. Like none of us get it right all the time. Like I'm constantly learning and stumbling and, and looking back and, you know, going, oh, great. I, I, I messed that up and having to apologize to people. And I get passive aggressive with my husband and I snap at my Mm. children. And am I better than I used to be? Absolutely. But it's, we're all still human at the end of the day. Yeah. That's my, uh, one of the things on my platforms with my community, I lovingly call myself a fuckhead Uh and I call call other people fuckheads. And then it's this, you know, it's almost the, like the fuckhead in me honors and recognizes the fuckhead in you. And that we are, that's the, one of the basis of the whole spiritual AF thing is that I don't trust gurus. I don't, I don't think anybody who shows up and and denies their humanity is trustworthy to Mm -hmm. me. And I, I totally honor people that, that, um, that do find that enticing, but I don't. And then one of the fears I had about coming, you know, becoming more public about being somebody who, value spirituality was needing to become that person, that person that only talks in a whisper and is never affected and hides all of all of their struggles or their struggles are always a lesson. Right. And I'm like, that's not me. And I'm and so I I started the whole fuckhead thing with teenagers because they we would have these moments where they'd be like, wait, you're a fuckhead too. And I'm like, yes, we're all fuckheads. It's amazing, <laughs> isn't right. it? Like when I speak about things, I'd really try to be like, yes, I I do, I have, I have expertise in this. I have a voice. And at the same time, don't ever, I'm not going to forget. And I'm going to have people around me or help me not to forget that I am a fuckhead, just like everybody else. And we are all going to struggle with some new flavor of fuckheadedness. And that is actually one of the beauties about being here trapped in a human body (laughs) is that there will always be another layer of fuckheadedness that will reveal something to us. And hopefully we can use it as a way to become better, more compassionate, more loving beings while we're here. A hundred percent. Amen. 
And I, I want to say something too about, about poetry and spirituality. Uh-huh. I remember someone asked me like, well, what constitutes a poem? Like it might've been, my daughter was in some, in her ELA class. And I said, uh-huh. anything like, it doesn't have to rhyme. It doesn't have to have stanzas. It doesn't have to look like a haiku coup, like any piece of writing that you deem a poem, like that is, I think it just allows you to take the pressure off. Cause I remember I, I wrote poetry starting when I was a teenager and it was very angsty and, and it, I think it did rhyme and had a specific <laughs> flow to it, but that was just my style in the past. I have some of them and they are literary gold. And what mm. I mean by that is like the drama, like and <laughs> it helps me remember because I have a 12 and a 14 year old. Now it helps me remember the obsessiveness or maybe it was just me because I'm an addict, but like the obsessiveness of love back then. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I digress, but I have found that during the most difficult times in my life, writing what I didn't realize was poetry later when I was done, I realized that it was a poem has been the most therapeutic and gut-wrenching and spiritual and healing processes I've ever done. Better than medication, better than crying my eyes out. And I've said this before on the podcast, I, I would say most of the pieces that I have, I have no recollection of writing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, did I write that? Like yeah. I had to have, cause it's in my Google docs. Like and I'm the only one that has access to it. It's as if something took over in my heart, in my body and that came out of my fingers onto the keyboard. And that I'm forever grateful for just embracing writing. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely love it. Every stage of that writing process has been extremely transformative for me over the years where I was, when I was a kid and I was writing poetry in a journal, and then I was going to free writing classes and getting prompts and, and then just blurting out everything that had happened to me on a, on a page Mm -hmm. without any sense of sharing it with anybody else was so transformative. I mean, it's a, it's a therapy in itself. And then the process of crafting has been one of the it actually, I feel like has been the most healing about my past. And then I've seen where, you know, I, I taught in extension programs for universities where it would be seniors and so many uh, combat vets would be in there. And, you know, we would write out over week after week, revising these stories of intense trauma. And then over the series of weeks, they would, they would say like, I just feel so much better. And it Mm -hmm. wasn't just having somebody read their story. It was going in and going, what was that blast really like? Well, what sound did that, you know, that bullet make as it went, what, what color was the dirt and to go in and do that. And for me, it had been going in to all those things in my life and truly reliving them, but in a, in a place of power and a place of curiosity that I did, that I learned from going to therapy, from sitting in meditation, from doing all these things, but then the writing of it truly integrated it into a place where it can live comfortably and not without any toxicity in my, in my psyche and in my body. That last part. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm well, I'm also writing a memoir and it's, oh. so it's going to <laughs> the major traumatic events happened in 2006 and 2007. So I'm about almost 15 years out. What is that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, it's been over a decade and the whole process has been so interesting. Cause it's like you said, you know, I don't, I, I majored in exercise physiology, so I probably should have majored in English and gone on to get an MFA, but I didn't. (laughs) 
Um, and so I have written three self-help books. I've gotten major book deals with, you know, the big five publishing houses, but which is very different writing that kind of nonfiction prescriptive nonfiction is very different than writing narrative nonfiction or, or memoir. And so I also have a fantastic memoir coach. Her name's Candace Davis. She's incredible. The reason I say this, cause I know why we have some writers listening and even people who don't consider themselves a quote unquote writer with a capital W. I know there's a lot of people out there who have been told you should write a book or they just want to write a book, maybe not get it published necessarily, but just have it out. I think that everyone should, if you feel the calling, even just a little tap on your shoulder, this whole process, even if I never published this memoir has been so healing um, and just take a step back and look at it from, from um, just the meta view of it. And I mean, I don't know if this is good or bad. Maybe you can tell me I get to craft the story. Like mm-hmm. I, I get to, <laughs> I'm in control yeah. of the narrative, which as someone who's experienced trauma feels incredibly empowering because yeah. there was a very great deal of time where I felt like I didn't have any control at all. And I was grasping at it with rage and desperation and hopelessness And now on the other side, I feel like I've wrapped my arms around this young woman who I'm writing about, which Mm -hmm. is my younger self. And I'm able to sit down with her and craft the story. And I'm, I'm, it's, to me, it feels like the definition of being on the other side. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, that being able to look at oneself with a lot of compassion and to, and, and there's this thing in memoir called reflective narrator that most people without guidance miss. Mm -hmm. And that it is that, that voice that comes in that says, I have digested this and I'm telling you this with a point and I'm going, I'm, I'm going to step in this person who lived through it who has 15 years distance to make some meaning. And, and once I point it out, people will, people will often say like, I, you, you've changed my memoir reading because now I see it when I'm like, Oh, there's that reflective narrator, Mm -hmm. but that's the part that we develop as we craft. Right. That, that we are not, there's the round where we just put the facts on. And then there's mm-hmm. the round where we write in more detail. And then there's the round where we step back and go, how does this connect with the things that happen in the future? And then there's the round that comes in and goes, oh, bless your heart, my younger self. Yeah. Oh, yo, what don't, you know, and oh, I see now what this means. I see now, I didn't know then why I did that. And now I see. Yeah. Or I still don't understand. That voice is the thing that grabs the reader by the throat and brings them into the book and says, mm-hmm. you know, like that fuckhead thing that goes yeah. where they oh, see themselves. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I'm interrupting this conversation to bring you a few words from some of our sponsors. This podcast sponsor has a product I use every day. And I started taking AG1 because I had the afternoon sluggishness. Who else feels that way? It's like a crash. And I just, (laughs) I wanted my day to be done and it was only like two o'clock in the afternoon. Also a friend had recommended it to me and I wanted to give it a shot. I love so many things about it. One is how tasty it is because if it doesn't taste good, I don't care how good it is for me. I'm not going to drink it. And it has a mildly sweet taste that I put over ice. I think it's delicious. And even more importantly, I love that it makes me not have that afternoon crash anymore. And I've been drinking it every day now for several months. And it's just become one of those habits that I don't even need to think about. It's just something that I do. 
One of the other things I really love about it is that your subscription comes with a year's supply of vitamin D, which is so important to add in when we don't get as much sunlight as we should. That was a huge game changer for me in terms of my daily sluggishness. And right now it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop, one scoop and a cup of water every day. I like mine cold again on some ice. It's delish. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you one free year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash noise. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash noise to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So I'm recording this on a Monday and I'm getting a Green Chef delivery today. And I'm, you know what? One of the things I love about it, because you never have to wonder what's for dinner, you know, because it's in your refrigerator already. You don't even have to think about it. I love green chefs so much. When I cook them, I feel like a chef and I kind of pretend that I am. One of the things that's amazing right now is that they're offering more customization than ever before. So you can pick and choose if you want um, chicken or beef or salmon, whatever suits your taste, and they'll deliver it right to your front door. You can choose from 24 recipes weekly with the option to mix and match meals from different preferences. So if you want to do vegan one day and keto the next and gluten-free, you can do that. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. Did you know that? They have dinners that work for you, not the other way around. And they have options for every lifestyle. If you are keto or paleo or vegan, vegetarian, Mediterranean or gluten-free, they have options for you. Go to greenchef.com slash noise135 and use code noise135 to get $135 off across five boxes and your first box ships for free. Again, it's greenchef.com slash noise135 and use code noise135 to get $135 off across five boxes and your first box ships for free. The other thing about writing, which I'm not sure if you experience this, but I, I actually hope you do, but the, I I ask my, I have weekly writers groups that members join and they stay in for years and years because it creates a deadline. It's a support, it's community and you get craft feedback. And every few months I will stop and say, why do you write? Mm-hmm. And there's these people who have dedicated time and money long-term to just the practice of writing. And a lot of them aren't doing it to publish. They're doing it to have the practice be in their life. And inevitably, people will say, I like myself more when I have a writing practice. I love the world better. I notice things more because the act of having to write detail every week makes me see that a flower isn't just a series of petals, that there's shadow and that there's brilliance and then there's decay. And then I walk through my life and I look at my the people in my life and I notice their crooked little tooth or the little, you know, the way that they mm-hmm. grab their ear when they're stressed out. And that makes me better. And I, I live my life in an exquisite way. And I feel like that is one of the cores of the creative spiritual overlap. I have only the self-help stuff out. I don't know. I would just wonder if you experience that as well, even with writing more didactic stuff. Well, there's a couple of, of nuances, I think. So my short answer is yes. And, it, and it's, it's funny, right when we started talking about writing, I had this sort of thought in the back of my mind that says, you know what? I'm happier when I'm in some kind of writer's group because I'm not right now. Like I have my writing coach, but it's a one-on-one thing and it's, it's very different. I also thought when I was outside playing, we have a 
almost four month old puppy. And, um, she's brought me outside way more mm-hmm. than I was before. We had a senior dog who passed away. And I thought this morning too, like, I'm happier when I'm outside because I've been outside so much with her. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yes, yes to everything that you said, just to touch on a little bit of, of answering the question of why do you, why do you write? Mm-hmm. I have found even at a young age that I can't make sense of things that feel complicated and heavy and painful and confusing until I write about them. Yeah. And sometimes my writing makes no sense. Sometimes it wouldn't make sense to, to anyone else, although I see things in it. Um, but that's one of the reasons that I write. And also I, I, what you were describing as when you are writing a lot and you start to sort of see the world differently, I find that's a little bit of a hazard as a writer. <laughs> like, you know, just noticing things like, oh, I could write a scene about that. And like, how would yeah. I, how would I hate this picture? And noticing yeah. the way people's breath catches that you may not have noticed before and just the subtle nuances of people's mannerisms that you have probably seen a hundred times, but never really taken note of it. It's, it's things like that, that I find are, are just, you know, not, not in a heavy way, but a little bit of a hazard of being a writer. What do you mean by hazard? It, I, for me, it can sometimes take me out of the present moment mm. and think about like what I would write about that or where mm. this would fit into either a blog, blog post or a book or things like that. It was more so when I was, before I started my podcast, when blogging was blogging was all the rage <laughs> and I would write, you know, I would, I would sit down to write, maybe I was in early recovery or something and I'm, I'm writing about that. And I would set out to do it where it's just for me. It's just for my own kind of personal dear diary, if you will. And yeah. then, and then I would start to think, well, this might be a good blog post and it would change the way that I was writing because I don't know about you, but sometimes I have two different modes. I have the writer where it's just for me and sometimes it's rage filled and messy and ugly. And then there's the one where I'm like, but this is for the people, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> it, has a, it has a process. It has an introduction. And you know, like, that's a little I, bit of a hazard. <laughs> I have that with social media. Yeah. Where I'll where I'll go, I'll be in the middle of just processing something. And then in the process, I'll think I could make a TikTok about right. this. <laughs> like, and then I'd have to keep doing this thing where I'm going, just experience your life first, Roxanne, yes. before you're like showing right <laughs> curating it for people. Yes. It's one of the reasons I'm taking a bit of a break from TikTok, which brings me to a question. Thank you for the segue that I wanted <laughs> to ask you. Um, which is a little bit of a of a left turn, but I didn't want to say goodbye without asking you to talk to the listeners about the this. You have a playlist of videos on TikTok mm-hmm. about not being nice. So can you tell us about that and just you know generally speaking, kind of walk us through what are your thoughts uh, around specifically people who identify as women being mm-hmm. nice? I have so much, so I'm going to try to not take. <laughs> Feel free to go off. As oh, my, 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 my go people off. are used to that. Okay. <clears throat> so back in 2016. <laughs> <laughs> so many good stories start with that. <laughs> exactly. 
um, or no, it was that, I think it was 2013 that I started spiritually up. I was not on social media. And then when I quit my job as a counselor, I got on social media and I started the page basically to stay connected to the community of kids. Cause I, I went to that clean and sober high school and then I came back and was a counselor. And then I became the director and it was my life for decades. Um, and then I quit to be a writer. And then all these kids who were like, I thought we were going to, I was going to have this community because it was just this thing of like, you never have to leave and you'll always get this. And so I started the, the page as a way to continue this ongoing conversation and this ongoing community of deep meaning and looking at tools to just help us become better and more engaged human beings, as well as stupid jokes and poop humor and Mm -hmm. just being, you know, being a fuckhead. And I had, we had, you know, several names. And then one day somebody, or not one day I got fed up because people were going, well, you say you're spiritual and no, no, no. And I had, you know, and I would just be like, I'm so sick of this. Cause I get it in my life where people Mm -hmm. will go, if you're spiritual, you have this one personality type. And if you don't act within that, that, soft, sweet, nothing phases you. You have no peaks or valleys. You are just completely even and every, you know, and everything is transcended. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Then you're going to, you're going to get picked apart about your, the truth of your spirituality. And so I changed the name in a huff where I just said, fuck you. I'm fuck. I'm spiritual as fuck. And you guys can all just eat it. (laughs) And that's how I got the name. When I got on TikTok and I don't remember how the don't be nice thing really started, but I, I ended up just telling stories about how we as women have been um, indoctrinated into men's comfort over our safety, over what is right and good over. We are, we are so taught to be pleasing. We're so taught to that, that our, we've, you know, we've had histories of people bragging about never, never making waves. And that politeness is just that, you know, politeness is what we should be doing. And as somebody who, who grew up um, with, uh, I don't, you know, I trigger warning for people, but uh, you know, with growing up in a way, in a place where stuff, horrible stuff was happening and nobody was talking about it. And then I was saved because there were people talking about it and I started talking about it. And so I have this thing where I say pol- polite protects predators and that I don't care about polite. And I feel like we all need to, we need to shake off politeness and delve headfirst into kindness as well as, um, telling the truth, naming stuff and being really okay with not being liked as women. Mm -hmm. And that, that manifests in so many ways to where I used to work with teenagers and so much of the, the work about their safety was going, say when somebody crosses your boundary early, not, we don't, I don't blame anybody for anything that happens or for like whatever way you got through anything is the exact right way. I just want to make that clear, but there is this thing where I could see, even with my ferocity, I grew up literally feral. Like I, yeah, there's, you know, and I have an edge on that because I just, I not growing up, not middle-class growing up with as much as wildness as I did. I had a very loose, you know, connection with polite society. And even with that, I valued men's comfort 
and politeness over my own safety so many mm-hmm. times to where then I just openly want people to brag about going. You know what? When that guy came too close to me, I just said, back up. And that, you know, or to go, why aren't we talking about Uncle Creepy mm-hmm. openly? Why are we so afraid to have that person not like us or other people not like us that we are willing to, to go to children and say, be careful around that person instead of saying that person is not invited and it's politeness. And so that's how the don't be nice thing happened. And then it intersects with the spirituality thing, because once again, I get spiritual people coming on to my don't be nice series and saying, well, if you were truly spiritual, this wouldn't affect you. And that is so discounting. That's gaslighting. It's so, and it's so pervasive and it so discounts the experience of so many people in the world that it goes that spiritual bypassing thing where we go, all anger is bad. Go Mm -hmm. goes to civil rights leaders and saying, Oh, if you were spiritual, you wouldn't be doing this. It goes to people who should be angry at what is happening and discounts it discounts and silences us and silences groups and, and just, you know, discounts so many voices. And so I just, I leaned in and like, now I'm like the don't be nice lady. <laughs> and I'm spiritual as fuck. Like, right. And, Both can and exist. I'm, and I don't give, I don't give two shits about politeness li- yeah. really. And I work at it. And the other thing that I don't prioritize is men's comfort. Yes. Yeah, that is, yes, I, much of my last book makes some noises is about Mm -hmm. that. It's just the culture that we were raised in. And, and also, I mean, I, I think it's important to also acknowledge the punishment and reward that happens when we are, when we do push back on that. And I think for women like you and I, who have a decent amount of privilege at this point in our life, mm-hmm. um, we're not, we're not as at risk when we push back mm-hmm. and when we are quote unquote impolite to, to men who have crossed our boundaries. And I think even more so for women like you and I to, to do that, mm-hmm. it's more of a push. It's been interesting. You know, my daughter is 12 and I have been talking to her about this since her ears have been working and still, still, I, I sometimes don't have as much fight as our culture at large does. Mm-hmm. And it's so infuriating. And I, I feel like I have to work overtime to talk to her about, and sometimes I feel like I'm lecturing and she's not listening and she's listening to music on her mm-hmm. phone. And I'm like, Oh my God, is this, <laughs> Am I even getting through to her? But, but it's, it's, I, I'm wholeheartedly agree with everything that you said. And I also think it's, it's a lot to untangle and unpack for women. And I, I don't want to, and I'm not, you weren't doing this at all, but I just want to acknowledge for people listening that it's, uh, there can be a lot involved mm-hmm. and, you know, we have many times experienced this in families we've experienced it and in our communities we've experienced it in our culture depending on your on your culture and it's um I am a big fan of of Kate Mann's work she wrote the book Down Girl mm. and she and I have not read this one yet she coined a term have you heard of empathy 
No. So it's like sympathy and, but <laughs> using the pronoun <laughs> him, empathy. Oh. And so she defines it as um, inappropriate sympathy given to men or boys, especially mm-hmm. those who are guilty of sexual transgressions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, I'm thinking of Brock Turner, the, yeah. those types of things. And um, there's so much that we could go on and talk about around this, but yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Roxanne. Like, I, I think there's the, the one of the, let me just distill it down to this. One of the lessons that I, that I tell my daughter is that, yes, I do want you to be kind to people, like lead with kindness. And when someone crosses your boundary, you have my explicit permission. I highly encourage you to not be nice. Mm-hmm. And I talked to her about like making direct eye contact with no expression and, and things like this. Like, I wish that someone would have taught me that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if, I think if we don't learn it early on, there's like some grief that can happen. Yes. And, or if we didn't teach our daughters or our nieces, there's also grief that can be in that. Mm-hmm. So I just, I just want to, I'm giving a virtual hug to anyone that needs it yes. where this, this topic can be painful. Yeah. And I just want to say like, I am way more interested in culture than I am in incidents. Mm -hmm. And so the the people like us using our privilege and our strengths to address culture will hopefully shift the, the entire ecosystem and make it so people who do not have the privilege of safety that I have now, mm-hmm. who can't do the don't be nice because they're physically right. not safe, um, that hopefully that the, those of us that have the safety, have the resources, don't have the kind of repercussions, um, if we're loud enough and consistent enough and get more people to do it, then then hopefully it will become more of an ecosystem culturally that um that you know that the the people that aren't in that privileged state can benefit from. The the other thing I want to say is about um the don't be nice thing is to just women are the ones who have been regulating and policing this. And they're the ones who I get the most pushback from. They're the yeah. ones I address most. They're the ones mm-hmm. who get so upset. The gatekeepers. And the, yeah. And that we, 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 you know, shame and admonish and ostracize women who don't do the polite thing, who, who, who shake it up. And it's mostly white women. You know, I don't think I've ever had anyone be, you know, any woman besides white women come at me about the don't be nice thing. And that's a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. Misogyny. Yeah. Well, and yeah. And just about, you know, white supremacy Mm -hmm. and white, what, what white women are doing, you know, and that we, we call other people angry, angry and blah, blah, blah. If we begin to, to just brag about not being nice, the way that women have been bragging about being you know, sweet and, and, uh, uh, you know, not accommodating, or accommodating the word. Yeah, that, yeah. Yes. That thing that, 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 um, and, and take that, you know, and to, to hold a mirror up to other people's reactions. So a lot of my stuff that I do on TikTok is actually like, I almost never address a man. I pull up comments from other white women and I go, look, look at what you're doing. This is what the response is. And then I am hopefully helping people hold a mirror up to go, oh, I've done that to other people. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's how I, I, you know, that doesn't fall within my value system. And that's how we change culture. 
That's how we make it a safer place to, um, for the the next generation of kids. And, and the other thing I just want to put out there too, is that I, I do this because I, at eight years old, I was in a, 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 a kiddie pool filled with sharks. And the one thing that happened that shifted was that I had people in my life, women who were out there talking about stuff. And who told me you are safe. You say it, whatever happens, say it. And I became a loudspeaker. And that is the only thing that changed is that I let everyone in my life know, I will not hold your secrets about your crappy behavior. At eight years old, I started doing that and I got taken off the menu. And I've seen it throughout my life that when somebody not that they were shaming anybody for not being able or privileged enough mm-hmm. to do it, but just if I offer something is to just go, if you become a persona, if people know you and look at you of going, that person is going to is not going to hold a single secret about this. People don't want to mess with that. It's true. <laughs> it's true. It's like you're a porcupine in a good way. <laughs> yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I hate that we have to wrap up. I feel like we're just getting warmed up here. And I know that you have some writing workshops and you have a podcast. So tell people, and all these links will be in the show notes, of course, tell people where they can find more about you. So my writing stuff, I am a multi-passionate person. And so I, I do make the mistake of being all over the place. So I don't think it's a mistake. I think, <laughs> I think it's so dehumanizing. Just, I yeah. hate marketing and it's like, Oh, you have to be known for one thing. It's like, ah, yeah. I love that you're multi-passionate. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> well, I am trying to integrate just because I, I've been a little bit all over the place, but thank you for that reframe. Um, so if you if you're interested in strictly writing and you know the the writing workshops, I have my website resourceforwriters.com. Um, I also have spiritual dash AF. I do a lot of overlap with those. And so even if you just follow me on any social media, it's spiritual underscore AF or my name, Roxanne McDonald. Roxanne is spelt like a chemical, like Roxanne. And, um, and just, yeah, I just announced stuff all over the place. Um, but I do have, uh, uh, some gratitude and writing workshops. I have mindfulness in writing. Um, and then I all have weekly feedback groups. So awesome. That's great. Yes. We'll, we'll put all those links in the show notes, your social, your, your two websites and the podcast and everything. Thank you so much for being here. This has been so enlightening and fun and interesting and, Remember everyone, it's our life's journey to make ourselves better humans and our life's responsibility to make the world a better place. Bye for now. Hi there. Swing back by to say one more thing. You know how I'm always giving advice over here on the show and on social media and a couple of those things is that I'm always telling you to ask for what you want, be clear about it, and also ask for help. So I am taking a dose of my own medicine and I'm going to do that right now. It would be the absolute best and mean the world to me if you reviewed and subscribed to this show, Make Some Noise Podcast, on whatever podcast platform of your choice. And even more importantly, it would matter so much if you shared this show. Sharing the show is one of the few ways the podcast can grow, and that also gives more women an opportunity to make some noise in their lives. 
You can do that by taking a screenshot when you're listening on your phone and sharing it in your Instagram or Facebook stories. If you're on Instagram, you can tag me at HeyAndreaOwen, and I try my best to always reshare those and give you a quick thank you DM. And also, you can tell your friends and family about it. Tell them what you learned. Tell them a really awesome guest that you found on the show that you started following. Whatever it is, I appreciate so much sharing about this show.